A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And of course, you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by Conservative MP for Wickham, Steve Baker. He's a former government minister, but he's also known as one of the most influential voices in the Conservative Party and played a very significant role in Brexit. We'll discuss the answered prayer which led him into Parliament and why he's open to challenging those within his own party. But before that, today I want to think about work. Government Minister Rachel McLean caused a stir this week, suggesting that people could protect themselves better against rising prices by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. You might have seen her on the television saying that. Well, we tried to be non-partisan on this show, and to be fair to her, she did say that this was part of a longer-term government plan. But the cost of living is rising to crisis levels for millions of families. Food, fuel and energy prices are soaring, and the reality is that many people are already working multiple jobs and yet still have to rely on food banks to feed themselves and their children. Nobody wants to be in this position. Relying on benefits and charity is often seen as shameful in our society. Indeed, this should prompt an urgent debate about what a sustainable living wage would actually need to be in this environment. Some recent price rises are beyond the UK government's control, but it does have powers to control the levels of support available to people. There's a political argument raging about the way our system functions, whether our resources are distributed fairly, and how large a role the government should play in the welfare state. There are Christians in all political parties, and we will often come to different conclusions about the best policies to pursue. But there are some broad biblical principles around work that we can use to guide our thinking as Christians. Firstly, it's important to note that the Bible introduces the concept of work before the fall. In other words, work is part of God's good creation. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were given the earth to manage. Genesis 1:28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Of course, following the fall, we are told that the work got harder. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, it says, through painful toil, you will eat food from the ground. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Secondly, the Bible talks of the importance of working rather than being lazy. 2 Thessalonians 3 says quite starkly, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. So we shouldn't assume that other people owe us a living. But the books of the law in the Old Testament are also very clear about the necessity of making provision for those who cannot support themselves and treating others fairly. Leviticus 25.17 warns, do not take advantage of one another. In the days before the concept of government welfare, neighbours were expected to support one another and ensure that the widows and fatherless, the most vulnerable in society, were cared for. People gave a tithe of their produce to the Lord and a proportion was distributed to the poor. Today, we give our elected government a mandate to collect taxes to spend on our behalf. But we also need to remember that work is not simply a means to an end, and we should not define or value ourselves by what we do. It is easy to say this if you have a job that you enjoy, 
And it is true that many people feel trapped in tedious, uninspiring and poorly paid jobs. Today, we often put value on a job according to how well it pays. But does a Premier League footballer who earns millions really do a more worthwhile job than a care home worker on minimum wage? And if you're unemployed, chronically ill or a stay-at-home parent, are you really of less value because you are not in productive employment? Well, some of the most vital and valuable jobs are paid shockingly badly. We started to recognise this during the pandemic, perhaps, when there was a focus on NHS workers, delivery drivers and supermarket workers. But God tells us that our worth is not found in our jobs. He does not define or value us by what we do for a living. We are all made in his image and value deeply for our very existence. And he wants us to have a proper perspective of our status as his children. At the same time, God wants us to honour him with what we do, whatever role we play and whatever value society places on it. Ultimately, God is the only one we need to please. Paul reminds us in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So today, we need to pray for our society to develop a better concept of work and its value, for wisdom for our leaders as they seek to tackle the cost of living crisis, and for all those who are struggling to make ends meet or feeling unfulfilled in their work. We pray for practical solutions so no one has to worry about where their next meal is coming from, for comfort in anxiety, strength to carry on, and a real understanding of our worth in God's sight. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. And so to our guest for this week, Steve Baker is the MP for Wickham, former minister, and once described as the hard man of Brexit. Oh, well, dear. you're also hearing to the, the person that the Daily Mail voted as Ramona of the Year. So here we are, brothers in Christ. Um, Steve, what a wonderful thing to have you with us. God well, bless you and welcome. Well, God bless you too. It's wonderful to be here with you, uh, Tim. I have to say that hard man of Brexit thing was <laughs> part of the worst mistake I ever made, embracing someone else's joke at my expense. And uh, of course, it's stuck. But um, there we are. If, I suppose if that's the worst thing that ever happens to me in politics. It's uh, not bad. Self-deprecation self is always a, a good look, I think, Steve. So let's go back to the beginning. And we often start when we talk to our guests about how they came to faith. So tell me a little bit about um, the point at which, if there was a point, that you began to call yourself a Christian. Well, it was a bit diffuse, I suppose. I remember being in primary school at Mount Charles down in Cornwall in St. Austell and being invited to pray that the Lord should come into our lives as uh, late primary school children. I remember that I did. Mm. Um but it all becomes a bit of a blur, a haze going back 40 years now. But then it, when, when my parents were getting divorced in my early teens, now that was obviously a very sad and troubling time. And um, I really came to Christ then. I was baptised by full immersion in the sea at Porthpian Beach in uh, Cornwall into the Church of England, which was unusual. And uh, then began the happiest years of my life. I really felt that the Lord was with me and lifted my spirits. Mm. Um, became perhaps a bit... I suppose the word is backslidden during university and roamed around a few different churches over the intervening 10 years. And then when I became uh, interested in becoming an MP, I, I then steadfastly attended church and I found Spine Baptist Church really have been at home there for gosh, mm. 14 years. So, yeah, I feel I'm now a very settled Christian after a sort of a very unsettled period from 20 to well, no, 36. Mm. Coming into politics, that was not something that, um, you know, as a teenager was something that was obvious to you. Tell me a little bit about uh, how politics became uh, well, an interest for you. 
Yeah, so I was always interested in current affairs. Being uh, an Air Force officer, you could have required mm. to be, and I was anyway. And then into business software. I never had any interest whatsoever in uh, politics. Although, funny enough, being on with you, I gave a best man speech in 1999, and it was a roaring success, if I say so myself. <laughs> and the owner of the venue came up to me afterwards and asked, "Had I ever considered becoming an MP?" And it turned out he was a former Liberal Democrat uh, member. It's all our fault. So yeah, yeah, it was actually the first person. Who suggested I become an MP was actually a former probably currently then. So but anyway, that was 99. I had no interest. I told him, sorry, no, I'm really not interested in being an <laughs> MP. Um, I was very, very strongly pro-EU. I was a EU federalist in favour of the euro. I remember telling somebody on the street uh, asking me to campaign to keep the pound that no, I'd vote for the euro in the referendum. But then what happened was the handling of the European constitution was profoundly anti-democratic. The Lisbon Treaty. Well, the the Constitution first, because you'll remember the Constitution was democratically rejected. Mm. So the Lisbon Treaty was brought forward instead. They changed the Constitution of France to avoid a referendum and made the Irish vote twice, at which point I was apoplectic. I thought I didn't Mm. join the armed forces to see not only a... You know, it's not as if they didn't hold referenda. They held referenda and it was rejected. And I've, I'm mm. afraid I felt extremely strongly that politicians should change course when their plans didn't enjoy public consent. And I'm afraid that that made me look very closely at the, the project. And I ceased to be pro-EU, I'm afraid. I, well, afraid mm. it is what it is. I became a Eurosceptic and absolutely determined to restore democratic control of political power. Um, and I kind of lament the whole business. So if only they'd, if only they'd uh, changed course and done things differently. Mm. So there's a lot we could say about all that, but you know, it literally is history now. There so I obviously um, you and I took very different positions on the referendum, but for what it's worth, I took a very similar position to you on the Lisbon Treaty. And I, in, back in the days when we had enough MPs to have a front bench, I resigned from it. Yeah. Um, in, do you know, um, I remember of, now. Now I think about similar, it. similar reasons to to you, but. So that now there's a, a world of difference from um, feeling very passionately about a massively important issue like that and then ending up ending up on the green benches. So tell well, me a little bit about uh, the process. Uh, well, I'll tell you the truth. I got on my knees and prayed. I said, I don't know what to do about this, Lord. I don't know what to do about this, but something's got to be done about it. And that was a Saturday, probably it would have been the uh, 24th of October 2007. Wow. And then every day for a week, somebody would say to me, Steve, you should become an MP. <laughs> <laughs> and on the Friday, I went to see a friend of mine who'd studied theology, who's unfortunately now passed away. But he said, Steve, what did you think that would happen? Do you think the Lord was, would part the skies and hand you a note? Mm. So uh, cut a long story short. I committed to trying in prayer on the 31st of uh, October um, 2007 and two years to the day later I was selected for Wickham. Now I say all that knowing how it will be interpreted and heard so I think it's extremely important I say that I try extremely hard only to have political views that I can justify on the basis of evidence and reason and secular grounds but there's no point me denying that that is what happened Um, but uh, you know there's there's absolutely no point anyone claiming uh, the obvious interpretation from that but it, you know it is what it is that's how I came to be a, an MP. God's sovereign over all things and if it happens he, he wills it and it sounds very much to me that your friend is right that God answers prayer through the mundane things that happen in our daily lives and if you pray then you know if you're not careful you'll get an answer. Well yeah it's very good of you to say so uh, it is very good of you to say so Tim especially since we've disagreed and I think it's a lesson for, for, for all of us in grace. Um, 
But yeah, I know for those secular people who listen to this, it'd be hard to hear us talking in these terms. But mm. I, I do would just really underscore that everything I do, I know I can justify on secular grounds. But, mm. you know, it's a strange dualism we end up living in. On the one hand, Christ is central to who I am and who I want to be. Um, but also I know that because I represent a diverse community, including people of no faith, it's mm. essential that what we do, we can justify on, on secular grounds. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. I'm talking to Steve Baker, who's the Conservative MP for Wickham. Steve, I remember being really struck um, on the night that the UK left the European Union, where social media and probably lots of other places as well were awash with a combination of um, triumphalism and great grief, that you put out a tweet that stood out, and it was a gracious one. It was one that acknowledged that although um, Brexit was a thing that you strongly favoured, it was a source of great pain and upset to others. I was moved by the graciousness there. Do you think there are opportunities as a Christian in politics to be able to demonstrate that all of us more often than perhaps we do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I also made a speech that night in the Commons, which won me jointly the Civility and Public Life Award with Mm. Politician of the Year with Ken Clark. Mm. So I was hugely honoured by that. But I deeply regret all of the division that we've had. But one of the things I would say, an opportunity for all of the Christians in Parliament, is to accept the good faith of other Christians. I mean, Mm. when people disagree with one another, it's a thing I've often said to the public. We're not very good at accepting we might be wrong. Um, And so we tend to think that the other person must be someone of bad faith or wicked or corrupt or Mm. self-interested or stupid. And you can see that witnessed on social media all the time. So I suppose the big opportunity for all Christians in politics is to accept one another's good faith and treat others as we would wish to be treated and Mm. to love even our enemies. And so I think there's loads of opportunities for witnessing in politics, but it's awful hard. And I suppose we're better for at least trying. Absolutely. And I wonder whether when we look at the way we order our society, you, you've you um, expressed really interesting views recently about um, your take on how the Bible speaks to us about how we should, how should we play out our politics, the idea that the state shouldn't be too big, um, that you referred to God as being a, a libertarian. Tell us a little bit more about yeah. Well, again, the democracy is the best system we've got, you know, or rather it's the, the worst apart from all the others. Um, so we definitely have to be a democracy. And there's good evidence in the Bible that God requires us to govern ourselves, you know, in a sense mm. um, that that's a lot of what it's about. But if you look, for example, at 1 Samuel 8, I'd encourage anyone mm. to look up 1 Samuel 8. The Israelites ask Samuel for a king and uh, God explains to Samuel that it's not Samuel they've rejected. It's God. God was the king. And they they lived under the law, under God's law, uh, applied by the judges. And that was the way that God intended it. And then in 1 Samuel 8, God tells them how terrible the king will be. And if you can imagine it, Tim, there would be taxes as high as 10%. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And people would have to run before the chariots, which, of course, would be high-risk occupation and so on. And Mm. in a sense, from that turning away, the rest of the Bible is about the futility of the law as the means Mm. to set society right, you know forgive me but if you look at the big story god gives us creation gives us the law enters into covenants then there's this turning away from god and the prophets apart from habakkuk cry out on behalf of god that we should obey the law Mm. and it all does not work and then christ comes fulfills the law sets it aside and in christ we're saved because Mm. we're set free from the law and it was for freedom that christ has set us free so for me the big journey of the bible the big story when you look at it is god's great story that the Mm. law sets nothing perfect the law is weak and useless and a better hope is required i'm trying to paraphrase hebrews seven i think and so 
I, I know other interpretations are possible, but God, for me, clearly intends that we should be free. If he doesn't mm. intend that we should be free, why on earth are we going through all this? And clearly he's the king, the ultimate king of kings, yeah. Lord of lords. So I think I feel justified in saying that he's both an absolute monarchist and a libertarian. But yeah. what are the implications for us? Well, obviously not theocracy, because there's got to mm. be room for, for faith and doubt and disagreement, mm. no taboos, all that. So, yeah, we need to continue to live in a liberal democracy. But as we live in it, we should accept as Christians that God is different. And it's far from perfect. There will be people um, who, let's say, are um, believers. Um, so they, they will um, they, they believe in Jesus. They accept the Bible as truth, but will take really quite left wing socialist perspectives. Do you think they're uh, wrong theologically or only wrong politically? I think they're wrong in both on both counts. God bless them. I think the, but what I would say to Christian socialists is, what is the role of coercive power in your conception of how to make society work right? Because that's mm. what the big story of the Bible is about. That's what politics is about, is the use of power in place of virtue. Because where there's power, there can be no virtue, I believe, you know, discuss, essay, question. Mm. But to me, power compelling people to do things and refrain from doing things is the elimination of virtue. There can be no virtue where there's no choice. So what is your if you're a Christian socialist, what do you think is the role of power in setting society right? And how is that consistent either with historical experience and evidence or with theology? And my view is it's not consistent with either. And in a sense, the torment of life in this world is we're intended to be both free and virtuous. Our will should be aligned with God's from a Christian point of view. Mm. We should have the law written on our hearts. And in having the law written on our hearts and loving even our enemies, we would choose freely to do the right thing all the time. Mm. But the torment of this world is that we don't do that. And then we go about trying to use the law to set things right, despite our fallen nature, mm. and it doesn't work. And that is that conception of what is actually happening is mm. entirely, I think, consistent with the big story of the Bible, where it doesn't work for God either. And so I think mm. as Christians, we should be genuinely radical. We, You know, Jesus said, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. You know, we should be living under the law. We should live under the secular law, but we shouldn't put any faith in it. It drives me mad that Christians somehow think that the that politicians can set society right. We're never going to it. Didn't work for God. It's not going to work for Tim Farron or Steve Baker. <laughs> so much there. And we've only got the one show. So, Steve, I'm going to ask you about one thing that you you alluded to just a moment ago about about virtue in politics. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, recently you have spoken in a debate that I took part in as well, where you cited scripture regularly and I thought it was a really really genuinely thoughtful contribution and it was over the future of the prime minister um over the potential investigation over uh, alleged um misleading of that of the house of commons you talked about forgiveness and then you were concerned that perhaps the prime minister's repentance wasn't um sustained if that's the right word yeah uh, where does the division come for you when it comes to somebody in power who you agree with versus somebody in power who you agree with, but whose character you don't feel able to support? Is that the right way of looking at this? Well, you know, I'm very fond of Boris Johnson, um, but he has a wild and uncontrollable spirit. And that manifested itself in the way that it did over these um, parties. Um, but, you know, I've said what I said, and mm. I think the problem is there's so much hurt out there amongst the public mm. that there's kind of a case for sackcloth and ashes. Now, it turns out there's a lot of people still support Boris come what may, 
but it's very very difficult to say to people you know imagine the son who couldn't hug his mother at his father's funeral what do you say to him when others were having parties and mm. i think it's incumbent on the prime minister to recognize that there's in a sense a period of sackcloth and ashes required you know a, a continue you know a sustained period of sorrow um you know, that's not in Boris's character to be like that. So I, I l lament where we are and I lament having to have said what I felt mm. I had to say. But um, one way or another, it needs to be resolved. I note that some of my Christian brothers have been the most strident defenders of Boris's. Mm. And it's, you know, with some humility that I acknowledge that. So I don't know. Even Samson had a place in God's big story and Samson was not a good man. So maybe maybe Boris is the maybe Boris is the contemporary Samson. I don't know. Well, there's a headline. Um, yeah. See, it's been a real blessing talking to you. And Likewise. as is often the case, we I feel like we should be talking far longer than we're going to, but we've only got the time allotted to us. Steve, you're a good bloke, and you uh, really do approach these things very thoughtfully. Uh, you're somebody always worth listening to. And as we often say on this show, um, whilst our tribes may be different, we are members of the same kingdom, brothers in Christ, and I've got a lot of time for you. And thanks ever, ever so much for giving me a little bit of it today. Well, likewise, Tim, entirely reciprocated, of course. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It might be how an aspect of this world impacts us as Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I would love to hear from you and attempt to answer it, so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Kat Jenkins from Church Action for Tax Justice asks... Would you support a wealth tax so that the richest 1% pay a decent proportion of the abundance they've been blessed with and the working poor and middle aren't continually asked to shoulder the burden? It's a great question, and it does in many ways uh, relate to part of the conversation that Steve Baker and I had earlier on. I absolutely believe that in a society like ours, we need to be seeking to make sure that uh, poverty is a thing that we just don't tolerate. And we recognise that wealth is something that we have, which is a temporary gift from God. And whilst I absolutely support the notion of freedom and people being able to make their own money, it's worth going back to the practice and the law in the Old Testament, which talked about the season of Jubilee, uh, that every 50th year, uh, that, the, um, that the land that accrued, the debts that um, uh, had accrued would all go back and be repaid. So in a sense, that great expansion of family wealth would get reset every half century, effectively. So I think there is some evidence in the Bible to suggest that a wealth tax is a thing that we should support. But either way, it doesn't sit right with me that people have far more than they need, more than they have earned if they've inherited it, and that there are people who are literally in uh, absolute obscene levels of poverty. I think it's absolutely fine for politicians to disagree on the mechanisms that you would use, a wealth tax, income taxes, uh, charity, and so on. I take the view that as a big society, as a big country, a wealthy country, we need to be doing things collectively. And that would mean that I would support the kind of thing that you have spoken of, Kat. I'm also fairly sure that if Steve was still with us at this point, he might disagree. And I think it's okay for Christians to do that. Where I don't think it's all right for us to disagree is the notion that we must do something to help the poor and we mustn't ever be complacent 
or wash our hands. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end this week's show in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we think of the millions of people in our country, many of those who will be listening to this show, who are struggling um, because their outgoings are increasing and their incoming is not. And we pray, though, for wisdom and for compassion on the part of those with the power to do something about it, energy companies, uh, government ministers, and many others in positions of influence. Give us wisdom and give us levers to pull that will make the lives of people in this country and beyond um, easier. Uh, we just pray for families that are struggling, that you would meet their need. We pray that as a country, as we face this uh, financial pressure, household after household, business after business, um, that we would seek your wisdom and uh, seek our greatest need to be met, which is uh, forgiveness uh, through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we see uh, the Ukrainian conflict continue, uh, Russia's illegal and wicked invasion of that country, um, three months on or more, um, we lift up to you, the people of Ukraine. We pray for justice. We pray for peace. We pray for protection. Uh, we pray that you'd help your people around the world, including here in the UK, to continue to have the people of Ukraine uh, on their heart, that we would not go uh, grow weary of praying, that we would not get immune to the wickedness, um, that we would not go soft in our prayers on our desire for justice. Uh, Lord, in our anger, let us not sin, but let us not grow complacent uh, or fatigued when it comes to compassion for the people of Ukraine. We pray for your intervention and we pray uh, for your people in Ukraine to stand firm. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so very much for joining us for this week's show. Uh, don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. It's been great having you with us. See you soon.